0: We hope by listening to our podcast, it will make each day you live on earth a little easier to understand. And now for today's podcast. Okay, well, hello, everyone. We have a great episode for you today. Uh, My guest and I actually have quite a bit in common, believe it or not. And um, he himself has also been a therapist for 25 years. My guest is Jerry Hyde, and he is the author of the book that we're also going to talk about, Empathy for the Devil, It's split up into three parts, which I loved, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Jerry and I also have affinity for cemeteries. We love cemeteries. We love music. And and among other things that you'll come to learn and find out in this podcast. So let me tell you a little bit more about him. Jerry Hyde was educated at Bryanston School in Dorset and went to art school at Kingston before working in film, theater, TV, and the music business. In his late 20s, he sought help for drug dependency and subsequently retrained as a psychotherapist. He followed a fairly conventional career throughout his 30s before completely losing the plot in his early 40s, and he's now in his 50s, and rebranding himself in the somewhat out there style for which he's become known, which some have dubbed gonzo therapy. He's also known to be the most dangerous therapist in the world, so you'll come to learn about that as well. And despite all attempts at midlife self-destruction, he is still has a very live and thriving practice. During his career, he's worked with many well-known names in the arts and creative fields. Plus, his own background in the music, film, and TV business has formed his outlook and writing style. So, Jerry, welcome to the Path Eleven podcast.
1: Thank you, and uh, congratulations on pronouncing Bryanston correctly. Most, most, particularly Americans, they stumble over that one. I don't blame them. A lot of, yeah. a lot of place names aren't that easy. I think. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I know, you know, before we kind of came on, I was asking how to pronounce a couple of other things that we're going to talk about. But, you know, one of the things that I found really interesting as I started to read your book is that you said that this book really broke and changed you profoundly. So the book is called Empathy for the Devil. And you broke it up into these three sections of sex, drugs, rock and roll. And, um, and you were really vulnerable. I mean, you shared a lot of stuff of your personal experience and things that you went through. And I really appreciated the vulnerability and the honesty of it. And I wanted to hear a little bit more about how the book broke you and how it changed you profoundly and what this process was like for you.
1: I think, uh, in if I was going to be specific, the work around my own sexual abuse and owning that, and I think I'd I kind of wondered for many decades, probably why do I feel that I was going to say good at? That's a strange way of describing it, but why did I feel I had such an affinity with clients of mine who'd been sexually abused, and why I, I was so I had so many? You know, I think we attract the clients we need, and. Yeah, I just had a kind of ability to work in that field and hadn't really like, like a great many people who have been sexually abused, hadn't really acknowledged the full impact of those earlier experiences on myself and, and my life story. And a great many people who have been abused have to go through the confusion because the, that often comes with it, because it's usually not for a lot of people anyway. A lot of guys, a lot of women have been violently sexually assaulted. Most of the men that I work with and myself included have been seduced. We haven't been violently attacked or dragged into a bush or something, you know, it's, it's, it's not what happens to men in the same way as it often happens to women. So there can be a confusion there with, well, was this really, you know, an abusive experience because there was some pleasure or I benefited from it, or it wasn't that bad All the kind of minimizing techniques that that we're so good at so i think really exploring the darker side of some of my earlier childhood experiences and then taking it to the next level which was probably the scariest which was looking at this theory that people who have been abused become abusers and going okay have i have i got the balls to really ask that question myself because no you know there can't be an abuser alive that really admits it you know, I I always find it interesting that the the Nazis had on their belt buckles in the war "God is with us," and no one ever thinks they're the bad guys, right? The, the 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 journalist John Pilger said, "In I think I quoted him in an earlier book. Have you ever thought maybe we're not the good guys?" And that's like, oh shit, yeah. You know, we all want to be on the good side, but what if we're not? So I had to really dig into the darker side of my sexuality, which I think is what. We all need to do, especially men at the moment. If we want to be safe, if we want to be in charge, if we want to really know ourselves, and that was a scary journey. You know, it's like, what am I going to find in this labyrinth? Mm -hmm. And I think I came out with some awareness that my boundaries are pretty short sometimes or have been in the past that I've been selfish, been unthinking, I've been insensitive, but no, it didn't turn me into a pedophile. Mm-hmm. But I had to go there. I had to, you know. I mean, there was no ready risk. I know I don't feel attracted to children, but it was still scary terrain to enter into. And I think that changed me. And you know, that's like I say. I think that's the work we need to be willing to do in in that model of the shadow. Is really go into those dark corners and when you shine a light, shine a light in there. It's like when you hear a noise in the dark and you switch the light on, it's it's very rare that it's actually a monster, it's a mouse, right? But you got to switch the light on and have a look.
0: Right, uh, when the light goes on, it has nowhere to hide, <laughs> you know? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you know, and I think it's important important too that we're having this conversation. You know, one of the, the first bits of work that I did in the counseling field was with survivors of um, sexual assault. I was a rape crisis counselor for about uh, five or six years. And, you know, one of the things that they would always say in the training is that, you know, it's one in three women, one in five men, but probably closer to also one in three men, but men are less likely to uh, disclose and to report it. And, you know, you kind of touched upon that too in your book because your perpetrator, you know, better was an older female, you know, and that sometimes that can bring a lot of confusion or it's downplayed like, oh, come on, man, why wouldn't you want that? You know, and it's kind of like men sometimes aren't afforded the same. I don't know if rules is the right word, but like you said, it's kind of like, well, maybe that should be wanted by you, you know, because you were young and there was this woman that was doing this and providing, you know, these sexual acts on you. But in fact, you know, it's like, no, it's it's still the same. It's a violation of the boundaries. It's, Mm. you know, it is sexual abuse, but men tend to stuff it and not explore it and you know we might get into this a little bit more when we talk more about the tribe mentality and what it feels like to be a part of the tribe and you know Sebastian Younger reviewed your book as well I'm familiar with his work but do you want to talk a little bit about that just for men and maybe some of the male listeners who might be listening on our podcast who have really been quiet about maybe their own sexual abuse that they've gone through and really don't know how to put a voice to it or have been afraid to look at that shadow side
1: Yeah, I mean, like I started with, I've not, I was thinking back, I've not met a man who's been violently assaulted, although I think there's violence towards sexual transgression, but not in that kind of brutal, physical, overpowering way that a lot of the women I've worked with have. And therefore that confusion, I mean, I was told very explicitly by, I was 17, I'd just turned 17, and it was a friend of mine's. Mother, who was in her mid forties, I was told very explicitly by her, "This is every young man's dream," mm-hmm. and she was a grown-up, and mm-hmm. I'd been trained to believe in grown-ups and trust grown-ups. So, but yeah, so I and it took me until I was in my fifties, I think, and it wasn't until I talked to an older therapist and I described this experience, which I'd talked about in therapy before, and been told, well, "Yeah, that's not really an abuse, is it?" But I talked about it with a male therapist and he's, he was like, well, that's rape. I was like, well, that's nah, not rape. I mean, it can't be rape. Right. Cause I was, you know, and he went, okay, so what if you flip the gender? So you've got a 17 year old girl who's shaking with fear and saying, no, specifically saying, I know I don't want this. And a 45 year old man climbs on top of her and has sex with her regardless. What's that? And I was like, well, that's rape. he's like, well, why is it any different? And <laughs> I think to, to have these, these kind of paradigm shifts in our heads is, is necessary because there's physiology involved, right? You, you, a lot of guys will say, but I got an erection, so I must have wanted it. Well, mm-hmm. you will also uh, encounter women who said, yeah, I became wet when I was assaulted because your body is designed with certain nerve endings to respond to a certain touch and certain stimulus. So yeah, I was terrified, I was shaking from head to toe, It's like every nerve in my body went into spasm. But I was still physically able to have penetrative sex. Mm-hmm. And then it became repeated. I mean, it went on for weeks, because there was a kind of power. I think one of the things that I explored is, if you go beyond gender, obviously, it's much more common for men to rape women, but if you go beyond gender, actually you get into, uh, abuse of power. And Mm -hmm. the situation there was an older authority figure where I was vulnerable. I'd run away from home. I had nowhere to stay. She said, you can stay in my house. If you cook and clean, I was like, that's a good deal. And then of course, being her kind of sex slave was, was part of the deal also, which I hadn't signed up for. And it ended, it ended with her saying, I remember very clearly. I'm going to the shop to get cigarettes, be out of my house. No, I've got my period, so I'm no longer sexually available. I'm going to the shop to get cigarettes, be out of my house by the time I get back. And that always stayed with me as a kind of, well, there's, there's no doubt here. I was I was, I was was just being used for, you know, a sex slave for that period of time.
0: Right. So what do you feel like this does to the soul and the spirit? You know, it for some people, it can break them down. Some people never recover from it. Yet, how can somebody also evolve from something like this? What's your take on that?
1: I mean, what it does to the spirit, I, the conclusion I came to in asking the question, do all, become, all all people who have been abused become abusers? I concluded no. I felt it more real that every, people who have been sexually abused struggle to receive and accept love. And I think the evolution for me, because I'm 57 now, I'm still quite mistrustful. If someone says, I love you, I think, what do you want from me? Yeah. Uh, and but that's a good challenge because I've had to really look at what does love really mean? What does it mean for me? How do I give and receive love? And that's at the kind of, you know, that's, that's the Beatles also, right. Yeah. You know, all you need is love. That's the, That is really at the core of so many things. But if you're blocked there, then you're going to struggle in all aspects of your life. So it's forced me to look with perhaps more acuteness than I would have done if I hadn't had this experience when I was young, which was, you know, that wasn't that was just one episode. I didn't write about all of my traumatic sexual experiences, but there were others. Yeah,
0: with that with follow up question with that, with the spirit. So you being the most dangerous therapist in the world, one of the things that you said, this is kind of like what you apply to your clients. You're like, I'm not necessarily having you come in. You're not going to sit across from me and I'm going to kind of pump you up about your self-esteem and how great you are of a person. I want you to really take a look at the darker aspects so you can begin to heal that and live more freely. So can you talk a little bit about your approach and why you feel like it's important for people to come to understand their demons Mm -hmm. and, you know, what does that mean?
1: The the dangerous thing is kind of tongue-in-cheek. Someone described me as that affectionately and I thought, that's good, I'm having that. (laughs) But I do believe in it. I really do. I mean, I don't believe I'm the most dangerous therapist in the world, but I believe that good therapy should be quite dangerous to your persona. Mm -hmm. Urquhart Toll put it very eloquently when he said the biggest obstacle to change that any of us face is our attachment to our persona. It's like, well, but I'm this kind of person. Well, okay, but you just kind of narrowed everything down by saying, I know myself, I'm this kind of person. And I think good therapy or good meditation or good spiritual practice should threaten that sense of self, which by my belief system is always false. I don't think there is such a thing as true self. I think there's essence of self or there's soul, but there's so many layers like Russian dolls, of ourselves and so many aspects to our character, that you you really want to be engaged in dismantling that all the time. So good therapy will be dangerous to the false self, perhaps is the right. truest statement.
0: Yeah, great way to put it. Yep, absolutely.
1: And and And, you know, this statement, which I encountered very early on in therapy, you know, well, you've just got to love yourself. You know, we're talking about love just now is true, but it's not complete. I think the a truer statement is you have to love yourself unconditionally, which means you have to have enough self-compassion to be able to ask those questions. So where am I transgressive in my sexuality? And if you don't love yourself, you're not going to want to go in that because it's bad enough already in the day-to-day experience of the self. You have to have a fairly robust level of self-esteem to go, okay, I'm ready now to look at the shittier sides and where I'm not such a nice guy because I've got enough in reserve to kind of prepare me for what I might find there. And I don't think, you know, there's, I can see out of the corner of my eye, I've got a, I've scribbled on the wall in the corner of my room, a quote by Carl Jung. He said, do you want to be good or whole? And I think that's a, a fantastic question for anyone to ask themselves. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, who wants to be a, you know, the bad guy or not not a nice guy, but there's no such thing as a nice guy. We're all multifaceted and If you want to be safe, then know your demons, right? Know what you're capable of. Know your greed, your jealousy, your anger, your rage, your violence. It doesn't make you a bad person. But if you don't know it, if you deny it, then it's going to creep up on you and take you by surprise because you won't have any mastery over it. You won't have a sense of how to manage that darker side of yourself. And also, you know, most people working with a shadow on this one, but it's, it's not just the malevolent or the... Unpleasant sides of ourselves that get buried in the shadow. It's also our brilliance. And one thing I will really say I love about America and American culture is the whole American dream and this, this idea that anyone can be successful because in the UK, that's a rather vulgar idea to be successful to is something you keep quiet, you don't celebrate, you, you shouldn't really, it's considered vulgar to have, you know, or ostentatious to have displays of success or wealth or anything like that. And I think that's kind of messed up because it keeps people very small here. And the American, you know, in, in the UK, we will often look at Americans as brash or boastful, but I think it's a much healthier attitude to be celebratory about our success. If not that gets buried in the shadow as well, and all your brilliance and all your genius and all your potential and all the good shit you've got to offer. The world gets hidden away and denied. Just as much as your violence or your murderous side or your lustful side, so right I think that's a really important thing for people to know
0: yeah, I would agree with that and you know as you're as you begin to learn your shadow side taking a look at that stuff as you were talking about love and unconditional love, I would say the next step probably too is to love to be whole is to also love all those aspects within you you know because the awareness like you said also is what can either stop a compulsion or you know, make you really realize what you could truly be capable of, right? Because everyone is capable of murder. Mm. Everyone is, you know, capable of a lot of things that appear to be the dark side of life. But if you can also acknowledge that and love that about yourself, that's where I think that wholeness comes in. Would you agree? Mm.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think probably the single most important thing I ever learned was a quote attributed to the Buddha where he said, love yourself and watch. And I think that's that's the best kind of methodology for living life is to have that baseline of self-compassion and then just observe and go, that's interesting. I just behaved in a really shitty way to my partner, or I snapped at my kids, or I lost my shit in traffic. What was going on? oh God, I did that thing. I'm such a bad person. That takes you nowhere. There's no growth or evolution. You just go straight into bad guy territory, right? Or you deny it and go, it's the other person's fault. There's two places you can really go with that system. But if you if you just observe with curiosity, it's like, so what was going on? Yeah, I had a bad night's sleep and I hadn't eaten breakfast and I was in a hurry and I wasn't centered. And that's probably not the best way to drive to work. You know, then you you begin to open up options rather than just condemnation and judgment, which is yeah, it's useless.
0: Right. So it's like as we talk about it, it sounds so easy. But then like, as you shared, it's like, here you are 57, right? You've kind of come to terms with some of the sexual abuse yet. You also recognize and notice within yourself that sometimes there's a little bit of that blockage of love, of self-love, or to be able to receive love, you know, that you can still be very cautious and curious about other people's motives, So why does it seem so hard once we do have this awareness, right? It's like you have the intellectual awareness, you know, it's like you can refer back to these quotes. It sounds like you've done quite a bit of, you know, work on yourself, yet there's still this protective factor that almost is like, it feels like a little bit of a battle of why can't we just step over this threshold and really embody that, you know, of what the Buddha says and really just embody this own unconditional love within ourselves.
1: I hope it is possible. Yeah, I haven't quit yet. I'm hoping I got a while longer to work at this. But I don't believe there's a completion point. I'm not a huge fan of even phrases like change or healing. I think change happens, but it's, it's usually not in the way that people expect. So yeah, I've been in therapy for 30 years or something. And I've been practicing for most of that. I live this. Does it mean that those um, defense mechanisms die completely? No, what it means is I don't believe in them anymore. So when I feel myself pulling back from my, my partner, I have other language, either internally I can say, oh, I'm doing that thing again and it's unnecessary, it's out of date. Mm-hmm. Or I can say to her, that's enough. I can't actually handle any more contact right now. It's, it's too much for me. I'm just not available. And that, that kind of informs her. Will I ever get to a point where I can just bask in someone else's love and affection without having that response? I don't know. Ask me in 30 years time.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but I like what you said, and it's probably important for people to hear is that you know, healing kind of, you know, as I'm kind of thinking out loud here as you're as you're kind of triggering things in my mind, healing almost sounds like there's an end point, yeah. but I love the word that you use, a continuum. It's it's yeah. always a continuum. And that maybe sometimes with all these self-help books, you know, and the culture, it's like healing yourself, you know, like everyone's probably anticipating, well, is this the right pill? <laughs> you know, is this the right book? Is, is this finally gonna be it? That gets me to a point where I'm finally healed, you know? But I think embracing that word continuum of the journey and just understanding that maybe there truly isn't an endpoint, or, you know, is there supposed to be? Because if there's that end end point, then maybe we're fully evolved. But it just seems like we can constantly be evolving. So I love that word continuum.
1: Yeah. Our show said where there's certainty, there's no learning. So I think when you get to that place where you go, I know myself, you've stopped growing. Mm -hmm. I don't know myself. I'm constantly being surprised by myself, constantly finding new doors that, you know, to cupboards I've never opened or never looked in or other, you know, things that I've explored for decades that I suddenly look at in a slightly different way. So yeah. there is, you know, I'd, if there was an end point, I don't think I'd do this. I, I have, you know, I've got attention deficit disorder. If you, if you sign up to that model, which I don't really, I'd have lost interest years ago, but as part of what keeps me engaged in working on myself and working with other people is it's, it's endless. It's not like you're watching the same play over and over again. It's a whole new chapter every single time. And there's constant surprises and, 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 and things that intrigue me.
0: Yeah, one of the things that I loved, and I've, you know, heard other people talk about it before, is where you mentioned in your book that true transformation is really death and rebirth, and death and rebirth, Mm -hmm. and death and rebirth, and death and rebirth. You know, and it's it's so funny because this week I was talking to a client of mine just of that. You know, was a client that had survived cancer, and now there's something going on through a divorce and some stuff, and it's like it's as if you know pointing out to her that you've died many times in this lifetime, but you've also become reborn, you know? And I think being able to recognize these things that we go through in our life, that we go through many deaths while we're alive and many reverses And I couldn't agree with you more that that's really where true transformation comes from. Mm. And uh, we were talking, you know, this woman, um, is a little bit older than I, and we were, you know, I was kind of saying as you get a little bit older though, it feels like there's a little bit of wisdom to know, okay, I've gotten through some of this stuff before I'll be okay this time. And I don't know if you found that too, within age, there is a little more of this wisdom where you don't get quite as freaked out when, when kind of shit hits the van, it's like, okay, you know, I've been here before I've gotten through some really tough things in life. And I kind of feel as I move through in age, I do look at it more as like a little bit of a challenge or, okay, what, what is here for me to learn rather than going into a crisis mode or, you know, automatic fight or flight. There's a little bit of wisdom there of, okay, there will be a gift. There will be some sort of transformation.
1: Yeah. I mean, I can still lose my shit completely, but with yeah with that kind of you could call it wisdom or just experience but in a different way where I know this isn't going to be permanent like when I first started to unravel in my late 20s that was terrifying because I thought is this it is this how it's going to be forever am I going to be in a state of fight or flight or you know, panic forever now I'm old enough to know so you know okay Mercury's in retrograde or whatever's going on. It's (laughs) not going to last forever. I just got to ride this one out. And I have that stamina, I think. Stamina is probably the word, you know, Mm -hmm. more than wisdom. It's just I know how to knuckle down and get through.
0: Right. (laughs) All right. Let me go through some of my other questions here. Okay. I'm curious to know a little bit about your experiences with psychedelics so i know that you know you went through your own addiction therapy there was a quote in here too that i wanted to explain a little bit more because i thought it was interesting you said there's this obsessive compulsive drive that unites all addicts it's too valuable too powerful um so have, I know I have kind of like three questions in here, but maybe can we talk a little bit about your journey through addiction and recovery? And what do you mean about that obsessive-compulsive drive that unites all addicts?
1: It's an obsessive-compulsive behavior. You know, you, I mean, when I was an addict... I would be constantly thinking about, okay, how much have I got left? I mean, my main addiction was cannabis in those days and prescription downers, but it was a constant, you know, how much have I got left? How long is it going to last me? This was pre-internet days. So, you know, pre dark webs so was like, right, I've got to get on the phone, find out who's holding, then I've got to get in my car, got to get, get across town, make sure there's a kind of overlap in supply. So I don't have any time you know where i have to be out it's it's a very driven obsessive thing you know people think of addicts as losers and and you know fuck ups and people run together it's it's a pretty you know uh demanding lifestyle where you have to have your shit together really to to be able to function of, of mm-hmm. course there are plenty of you know people who don't manage to hold that together but i think there's you know, there's a commonality, you talk to most addicts, they have that kind of narrow focus of I've just got a score. You know, anyone who's been addicted to their phone, you know, you know how, what an obsessive thing that is or cigarettes, you know, I mean, I've been addicted to cigarettes a lot of my life. And it doesn't matter how cold and wet it is outside. If, if, if I'm hooked on cigarettes, I'm going up to the store to buy, you know, to buy some tobacco. And that's an obsession. It's a driven kind of hungry obsession. I'm not so sure, but I mean, people have the right to their own kind of modalities with addiction. I'm not sure if I consider it a disease. I don't know if, I think it's pain management. Is that a disease or whatever, maybe. Is it something that I've recovered from? No, because on the whole, if if, it's on the whole, it's something I've recovered from in that I don't think I'm being destructive. I don't think I'm harming other people. I don't think I'm compromising my life. But I still have that drivenness and you need that obsessive, compulsive drivenness to write a book. You need it to paint a picture. You need it to make a movie, you know, that, that obsession, obsession with detail, you know, to edit a podcast, all these require a degree of, of, of single-minded tension. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the, that's the the flip side of, of addiction. It's the positive side. Yeah, you know, so I I kind of harness that part of me rather than trying to, you know, good luck with getting rid of it. I, you know, like I said, I don't know if that's possible. But I'm not a drug addict. I can be around drugs and narcotics, and that's just not an issue for me. I don't feel that I'm using willpower or self-control. I I feel that I dealt with a lot of the pain that was that I was numbing out, and so that's that's not something that needs discipline. Mm-hmm. But I don't want to let go of the whole thing because. Yeah, that that drivenness is a fantastic force,
0: right? And but these are good productive. questions. Yeah,
1: the great questions I've been asked by therapists in the past. You know, I have. I'm not. uh, I'm by no means bipolar, but I have. I, you know, I'm on that kind of scale of I have a very up times and very downtime. I'm dyslexic, and uh, you know, I've got different learning difficulties. But when I've been ever been asked, so if you could be cured of this, but you'd have to give up the good stuff that comes with it, would you? It's like there's no way. Yeah, you know, okay. that that manic that manic depressive thing. The depressive thing takes me into dark places where I really look at myself, and then the manic thing means I can write a book in three weeks. Right. <laughs> why would I? Why would I give that
0: up? Yeah. yeah, awesome. Agree. So, so with some of your experience with uh, psychedelics, I had never heard of iboga before. I've heard of ayahuasca. I've had quite a few um, people on the podcast that journey with people they take people to peru you know they are in contact with these certain shamans and i have heard about um, dmt so instead of going into like each experience because that's what you do in the book and we want people to go out and get your book empathy for the devil do you want to talk just maybe about the overarching arching experience of what these psychedelics kind of did for you maybe on the soul level
1: I mean, I've had arguments with people, you know, as a drug, former drug user who've said, well, haven't you just fallen off the wagon and you're just going back to taking drugs? I would say no in as much as I think these are teachers. I think they're medicines as opposed to narcotics, the semantics. I don't, you don't need to get too hung up on that. But the primary difference, I would say in my twenties, I was, I was being avoided with my drug use on the whole. And then in my fifties, since I've been using these different medicines, it's, they're not, you can, you don't avoid anything with them. They're very confrontational. Mm-hmm. So you, they're, they are, so, for me, they're shadow medicines in the, once you make that decision and commit to going into that experience. I think this is why some people have a difficult time. They want, they want, you know, they have curiosity and that's great, but they don't necessarily like what they're confronted with and they're very confrontational. I've always felt like I've been taken care of. I've always felt that they're benign medicines that they're on my side, but yeah, you can't avoid yourself it's like with therapy, you can, you know, we can all run, you know, rings around our shrinks. We can (laughs) manipulate and we can avoid and we can go, oh, this is getting a little painful. Let's change the subject. And the therapist's job is to try and, you know, keep an eye on that. But we all know how to manipulate other human beings, but you, you drink some of these medicines, there's no manipulation. You're not, you're not getting off the hook, you know, for the next four or five hours, you are going to be confronted with this stuff, whether you like it or not. And I think that's in the right circumstances with the right guides with the right support when you're ready and preferably never before you know it It can it I, I i went to those those particular medicines when i was 50 i'd done over 20 years of therapy and i realized there were certain blocks that i places i couldn't access in talking therapy and i'm a talking therapist i'm a fan clearly i believe in it and i recognize the limitations you know there's pre-verbal stuff that mm-hmm doesn't really work in a talking therapy because you don't have the language for it there's all sorts of places where we're so wounded we're so hurt that it it's buried in our unconscious and that can be dangerous because you don't want to take the lid off too abruptly but like i say if you're prepared and you're ready and you have uh, kind of the right mindset then then opening those boxes and looking inside can get you through you know they, they talk about ayahuasca in particular as 10 years of therapy in one night which i would kind of agree with the caveat that it doesn't mean you do 10 years of therapy It means you get that download in one night you still then got to take 10 years to process it <laughs> you know it's not a shortcut but it, it will open up a lot of stuff and that can be good and that can be overwhelming i mean it's six years since i drank ayahuasca i'm thinking of maybe going back next year which scares the crap out of me but um or oh, it scares the crap out of my ego anyway. But yeah, that six years has been necessary for me. If I in my 20s, I'd have probably gone back every week. But I think <laughs> with maturity, I've learned, you know, to take time to digest an enormous meal is beneficial before you start picking up more food, you know, really allow yourself to process. So I'm definitely... <laughs> Pro psychedelic medicine, but with a lot of caution around it. And yeah, I'm not an advocate of going all the time. You know, everyone's got to decide on their own process and their own journey. But sure, yeah, I, I don't push people. You know, I, I guide them gently, and if I think they're ready, then I'll support them. But I I won't encourage them to go back in a hurry. So it's like just take time to unwrap this present and really explore it before you go unwrapping another one.
0: Yeah. Okay. Great. So how about, let's talk about Tim Hetherington and Sebastian Younger. So how did you kind of come to have a relationship with, with these people? And I know that you have some admiration for Tim and, you know, you put him in the book and in a certain chapter, and then I'll share my story with you.
1: Yeah, I mean, Tim in the book, I never met Tim. He, again, with age, I think I've come to recognize that when I feel a charge, whether it's deep hatred like your former president, you know, he triggered the shit out of me. And a lot of people. Or if or if I or if I have a huge kind of warm, you know, fuzzy, loving response to someone, it's all projection, right? So I think I I was just on holiday. I'm interested in um combat photography. I'm interested in photography. So I'd been reading I think I'd been reading Robert Kappa's book. And, you know, Amazon says if you've read this, you might like this. And there was a book about this guy called Tim Hetherington and I bought it and I read it and it just hooked me. And I went and visited his grave when I got back to London. And first I thought the book was going to be about Tim as a role model, actually, because, you know, I I run a lot of men's groups and it's a struggle, perhaps more now than it has been for a long time, to find good male role models. I I think, you know, that's a tough one. So when I've asked that question, you just get met with blank stares by a lot of guys, you know. (laughs) Who were the posted male role models so i was like okay i could build a book around this i could kind of use him and what he stood for and what he was about and i think you know he comes across as someone with a lot of integrity so i wrote to sebastian who i'd admired for a long time and he was very quick to reply and was very generous and you know supporting me in that project which then i think it 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 evolved into the the book that it became and became much less about him. But that was, that was what really drove me initially inspired me to start writing again. You know, I never plan books, they kind of come to me every three or four years and an idea or a feeling will come. But I think, yeah, these, these are guys that I think in, in our know, modern culture are people that I admire. And again, it's back to shadow work and, and the buried goodness and brilliance in us, you know, when you see someone that you really admire, it's, it's as important as the people you hate to take ownership of that projection. And so I, you know, it's very hard. It's very hard to, to do that, but to recognize that at least in a dormant form, I have qualities that I want to nurture and grow in myself that I see reflected in, in Tim Hetherington, his, his character and his work.
0: Yeah. So back in 2008, I opened up a wellness center for combat vets. It was a nonprofit with an acupuncturist and I was doing more energy work and, you know, therapy with them. And I was made aware of the documentary Restrepo, mm. which phenomenal. And Sebastian, Tim, and I think that there were two or three of um, the combat vets were doing a premiere and a Q&A in Albany, New York, really close to where I lived. So we had opened up, you know, this nonprofit for the combat vets and this documentary comes out and, you know, Tim was there and I met him briefly. I mean, we were in each other's presence for about two and a half hours and, you know, we talked to him personally and let him know about the work that we were doing. And there was just such a peacefulness about him and kindness He's tall and handsome. So there was that. <laughs> but but also just like ah, I just can't explain it. You know, he was just one of those people that even though I had only spent about two and a half hours with him, it was so impactful, you know. And when I heard of his death, it was like really shocking. And I don't know if Sebastian talked about it in a podcast or uh, or was, there was a follow-up or something. But, you know, when you watch that documentary Restrepo and you see how they live, what they live through, I mean, Sebastian and Tim basically were combat vets, you know, even though they were photography, you know, photographers and experienced all the same PTSD. And then, you know, the way that Tim had died, it's like, God, if he survived, you know, where he was, you know, in, in it was Afghanistan, right? Mm-hmm. They were in the Cornigal Valley. That's what it was. You know, and and interesting, too, like you mentioned in in your book that like that year he was kind of feeling like maybe he should begin to get out of this, you know, journalism and stuff. But it was just comforting for me to read that in your book and having had, you know, it's kind of like the seven degrees of separation, you know, of having met him and been in his presence. And then that also led me myself to learn more about Sebastian Younger and, uh, you know, heard a great podcast with him and Joe Rogan about his book, Tribe, you know, and, you know, and and you talked about that too. And also talked about really the importance of community. And that was like another message in your book. It's about, you know, it's important to get to know who is around you. It's important to get to know your community because when we don't hurt humans, we love, you had said. You know, it's like we hurt idiots, jerks, assholes, you know, among other words, and superlatives that he used, but we don't, we don't hate and kill humans, you know, and if you have that human contact and that, that tribal mentality that Sebastian Younger kind of talks about in the book, it's a great book. That's another book people should get and listen to, you know, but do you want to say anything kind of about, about that and what it means to kind of be within community and the importance of loving, you know, humans? So we're not hurting each other.
1: Uh, You know, I'm I'm definitely guilty of romanticizing the past. And I'm sure, you know, it wasn't as rosy as I can imagine. But I think that a lot of the problems I see that I encounter in people when I'm working and that I see politically and socially and you know, down to climate change and these very, very serious things that we're facing as a species, I would say not entirely, but largely a product of a lack of community. Because you don't burn up a planet that you care about, you know, you, and I think we've all come, become very, So we've objectified the planet as much as we've objectified each other. We've become cut off from our nature. We've retreated into cities and, you know, we don't, we don't have the same relationship that our ancestors had and people go, well, that's a really long time ago. It is a long time ago, but it isn't, you know, if we've been around in, in more or less in this kind of form for 2 million years, and we've been living in cities for about 8,000 years, that's a, that's a fraction of time mm-hmm. that we've been in, in existence. But, uh, you know, I, I believe it was Sebastian told me that pre-agricultural revolution, which was eight to 10,000 years ago, there was about a million people on the planet. Now there's what, seven and a half billion. Mm-hmm things like Facebook and social media and what have you, they're an attempt, you know, they come from our impulse or our instinct to connect with each other. But it's not the same as living in a tribal society or a village society where you know each other. I mean, even, I think I put this in the book, even, um, you know, in my, my mother's nearly 90, but when she was a child, she lived in a small village. You know, the one that you would see in, in movies, they, they mm-hmm. film there all the time. It's the kind of archetypal English country village. And she said there was, you know, the butcher and the grocery shop and the post office and the, the, the blacksmith's shop and the place where you took your laundry and the pedophile and everyone knew which was which. And I think that's an amazing statement that there was an old guy who was allowed to live in the village who wasn't put in prison, wasn't ostracized, but you just kept your kids away If it wasn't mm-hmm. safe. Everyone knew who he was. There's a visibility. Now we have sex offenders programs where people are relocated and given new names when they're released from prison. And it's like, well, you don't know who your neighbor is. And and it's no longer safe to let your kids out and play in the street, you know, because our, our sense of protectiveness of each other and our environment and our planet has collapsed and we've all become very separate from each other. And we treat each other with suspicion. That's, that's a human tragedy that I think has far reaching effects. You know, mm-hmm. you, and like I say in the book, you don't, you don't abuse, you don't insult, you don't attack, you don't rape, you don't murder people. You, you do that to objects, to dehumanized people. Mm-hmm. You know? So the dehumanization that comes with separation, I think is, is, and that's my definition of toxic. Really. That's where mm-hmm. toxicity comes from. Yeah. Right.
0: So I just have to look up one one last quote that I got from your book that I really felt like wraps everything up and is a beautiful message. It might be a nice way uh, to kind of take you out to, to end this great talk that we're having. And uh, I don't remember, it was a little bit further, uh, maybe closer to the end of the book. And you said, take responsibility for your own evolution. You don't have to get spangled on strange jungle medicine and you don't have to do therapy or go traipsing around old trenches or graveyards, but follow your heart, let your feelings guide you. Whenever you have an awakening, pursue it. Even if you don't know why, it's trying to bring you home.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I love that. So maybe take responsibility for your own evolution. Let's just hear one, one last thought that you have about that because that was just beautifully written in your book.
1: Oh, no one's going to do it for you. <laughs> yeah, know, it comes down to that, doesn't it? I I have a, I'm in my therapy room now where I practice and on the door, on the way in, no one ever sees it because the door's open when they come in. It's my little private joke, really. It says on the back of it, it says, abandon all hope, he who enter here, which was above the doorway to Hell in uh, Dante's Inferno. And I like that partly because I've got a dark sense of humor, but also because I believe in it. I think when you most people maybe everyone i don't know if this is universal but most people when they come into therapy or when they begin this journey there's still residue of a hope that the therapist will fix you or there might be a magic pill that you that your doctor can give you that will make all your pain go away or you can take plant medicine and everything will be okay which i think is rooted in a kind of a very primal desire for our parents to be the parents we really wanted, which of course, none of them are, because none of them are capable of that, because they're all wounded people. You know, you get some people mm. who, who get lucky and they've got great relationship with their parents, but you know, our parents are just human beings struggling to do their best. So that residue of hope that someone will save us, God, you know, Jesus, you know, Christianity, religion, other, there's all sorts of places where we can project that dream or hope that someone's going to save us my statement, abandon all hope is it's not as pessimistic or as negative as it sounds. It's like, just stop waiting for the cavalry to come because you will wait a long time and they're not going to show up, feel sad about that, go through the grief Cause I think there is a grieving process when you realize, oh shit, I've got to do all this by myself. Yeah. And there's a sadness and you have got to let go. You know, my mom's just not going to be the mom I needed or wanted. My dad's not going to do it either. There's a sadness and a grieving process that people often need to go through. And then you get this incredible power. I would say it's true power. Not, not the power that people can abuse, take advantage of, or go crazy with, but a, a genuine power and authority that comes with adulthood. And that's the reward for letting go of hope that someone's going to save you, is that you become adult. And you you step it you know this is to me these these kind of throwaway meme like mess you know words that we we use like stepping into your power what does it actually mean to me it means growing up it means being an adult it means not waiting for the cavalry to come and save me taking responsibility for my decisions for how I impact other people for the dark shadowy corners in my own my own soul being willing to go there and the reward is to come home to yourself you know that's what it really means and that means being in in charge of yourself right and being accountable for your impact on the people you love and the world you know, and we're not doing the best job right now so right. it's mm-hmm. I think it's it's more important than ever
0: yeah. Read. Well, Jerry Hyde, thank you so much for this wonderful conversation today. Again, the book that we were um, talking about is called Empathy for the Devil, but you have written other books. So, where can people find uh, your books or inf- more information about you? And we'll put those links in the show notes.
1: Yeah. I mean, I always, you know, ask people, go to your local bookstore. Unfortunately, most people say, I haven't got a local bookstore because Amazon and, you know, these big. Companies wiped it out years ago. But if you have local bookstores, then support them by ordering ordering the books through there. And my, my website is my name, jerryhyde.co.uk. All
0: right. Well, thank you, Jerry. And thank you, everyone, thank you. for listening. I hope you were able to take a lot away from this conversation today. Check out the book. It's great. Empathy for the Devil, Jerry Hyde. And uh, I will talk to you guys next time and bring you another phenomenal guest. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's show. If you haven't already, please subscribe and rate and review the PAP11 podcast in Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, this podcast is made possible by our sponsor, PAP11 TV. Visit PAP11TV.com to start a seven-day free trial and start streaming over a 100 hours of exclusive video content on consciousness, healing, and life after death. That's path11tv.com, and be sure to use coupon code PODCAST30 to take 30% off your annual membership. Start satisfying your spiritual curiosity with a membership to Path 11 TV today. Bye for now.